Chapters 25 and 26 of Space Viking by H. Beam Piper. Read by Mark Nelson. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Space Viking 25. Do you think I was afraid of Victor of Zotchittel? he demanded. Half a dozen ships. We can make a new Van Allen belt around Tanith of them, with what we have here. Our real enemy is on Marduk, not Zotchittel. His name's Zaspar McCann. Zaspar McCann and Andre Dunnan, the man I came out from Graham to hunt. They're in alliance, and I believe Dunnan is on Marduk himself now. The delegation who had come out from Graham in the yacht of the Duke of Biglersport were unimpressed. Marduk was only a name to them, one of the fabulous civilized old Federation planets no sword-worlder had ever seen. Zaspar McCann wasn't even that. And so much had happened on Graham since the murder of Elaine Carval and the piracy of the Enterprise that they had completely forgotten Andre Dunnan. That put them at a disadvantage. All the people whom they were trying to convince, the half-hundred members of the new nobility of Tanith, spoke a language they didn't understand. They didn't even understand the proposition, and couldn't argue against it. Patrick Morland, who was Graham-born and had been speaking for a return in force to fight against Omfrey of Glaspeth and his supporters, defected from them at once. He had been on Marduk and knew who Zaspar McCann was. He had made friends with the Royal Navy officers, and had been shocked to hear that they were now enemies. Manfred Ravallo and Boke Valkenhayn, among the more articulate of the Raid Zachittal Now party, snatched up the idea and seemed convinced that they'd thought of it themselves all along. Valkenhayn, who had been on Gimli and talked to Marducan naval officers. Ravallo had brought Princess Bentrick to Tanith and heard her stories on the voyage. They began adducing arguments in support of Trask's thesis. Of course Dunnan and McCann were in collusion. Who tipped Dunnan off that the Victrix would be on Audholma? McCann, his spies in the Navy tipped him. What about the honest Horace? Wasn't McCann blocking any investigation about her? Why was Admiral Schefter retired as soon as McCann got into power? Well, here we don't know anything about this Zaspar McCann the confidential secretary and spokesman of the Duke of Bigdrasport began. "'No, you don't,' Otto Harkeman told him. "'I suggest you keep quiet and listen, till you find out a little about him.' "'Why, I wouldn't be surprised if Dunnan was on Marduk all the time we were hunting for him,' Valkenhayn said. Trass began to wonder. "'What would Hitler have done if he told one of his big lies and then found it turning into the truth?' Maybe McCann had been on Marduk. No, he couldn't have hidden half a dozen ships on a civilized planet, not even at the bottom of an ocean. I wouldn't be surprised, Alphen Carford was shouting, if Andre Dunnan was Aspar McCann. I know he doesn't look like Dunnan, we all saw him on the screen, but there's such a thing as plastic surgery. That was making the big lie just a trifle too big. Zaspar McCann was six inches shorter than Dunnan. There are some things no plastic surgery could do. 
Patrick Morland, who had known Dunnan and had seen McCann on screen, ought to have known that too. But he either didn't think of it, or didn't want to weaken a case he had completely accepted. As far as I can find out, nobody even heard of McCann till about five years ago. That would be about the time Dunnan would have arrived on Marduk, he said. By this time, the big room in which they were meeting had become a babble of voices, everybody trying to convince everybody else that they'd known it all along. Then the back-to-gram party received its coup de grace. Lothar Fale, to whom the emissaries of Duke Joris had looked for their strongest support, went over. "'You people want us to abandon a planet we've built up from nothing, and all the time and money we've invested in it, to go back to Graham and pull your chestnuts out of the fire? Gehenna with you! We're staying here and defending our own planet. If you're smart, you'll stay here with us.' The Biglersport delegation was still on Tanith, trying to recruit mercenaries from the King of Trade Town, and dickering with a Gilgamesher to transport them to Graham, when the big lie turned into something like the truth. The observation post on the moon of Tanith picked up an emergence at twenty light minutes due north of the planet. Half an hour later there was another one at five light minutes, a very small one, and then a third at two light seconds and this was detectable by radar and microray as a ship's pinnace. He wondered if something had happened on Amaterasu or Beowulf. Somebody like Gratham or the Everards might have decided to take advantage of the defensive mobilization on Tanith. Then they switched the call from the pinnace over to his screen, and Prince Simon Bentrick was looking out of it. "'I'm glad to see you. Your wife and son are here. Worried about you, but safe and well.' He returned to shout to somebody to find young Count Stephen of Ravery and tell him to tell his mother. How are you? I had a broken leg when I left Moonbase, but that's mended on the way, Bentrick said. I have little Princess Myrna aboard with me. For all I know, she's Queen of Marduk now, he gulped slightly. Prince Trask, we've come as beggars. We're begging help for our planet. You've come as honored guests and you'll get all the help we can give you." He blessed the Zachittal invasion scare and the big lie which was rapidly ceasing to be a lie. Tanith had the ships and the men and the will to act. What happened? McCann deposed the king and took over? It came to that, Bentrick told him. It had started even before the election. The people's watchmen had possessed weapons that had been made openly and legally on Marduk, or trade to the neo-barbarian planets, and then clandestinely diverted to secret people's welfare arsenals. Some of the police had gone over to McCann. The rest had been terrorized into inaction. There had been riots fomented in working-class districts of all the cities as pretext for further terrorization. The election had been a farce of bribery and intimidation. Even so, McCann's party had failed of a complete majority in the Chamber of Representatives, and had been compelled to patch up a shady coalition in order to elect a favorable Chamber of Delegates. "'And, of course, they elected McCann Chancellor. That did it,' Bentrick said. "'All the opposition leaders in the Chamber of Representatives have been arrested, on all kinds of ridiculous charges.' sex crimes, receiving bribes, 
being in the pay of foreign powers, nothing too absurd. Then they rammed through a law empowering the Chancellor to fill vacancies in the Chamber of Representatives by appointment. Why did the Crown Prince lend himself to a thing like that? He hoped that he could exercise some control. The royal family is an almost holy symbol to the people. Even McCann was forced to pretend loyalty to the King and the Crown Prince. It didn't work. He played right into McCann's hands. What happened? The Crown Prince had been assassinated. The assassin, an unknown man believed to be a Gilgamesher, had been shot to death by people's watchmen guarding Prince Edvard at once. Immediately McCann had seized the royal palace to protect the king, and immediately there had been massacres by people's watchmen everywhere. The Marducan planetary army had ceased to exist. McCann's story was that there had been a military plot against the king and the government. Scattered all over the planet, in small detachments, the army had been wiped out in two nights and a day. Now McCann was recruiting it up again, exclusively from the People's Welfare Party. "'You weren't just sitting on your hands, were you?' "'Oh, no,' Bentrick replied. "'I was doing something I wouldn't have thought myself capable of a few years ago. Organizing a mutineering conspiracy in the Royal Marducan Navy.' After Admiral Schefter was forcibly retired and shut up in an insane asylum, I disappeared and turned into a civilian contragravity lifter operator at the Malverton Navy Yard. Finally, when I was suspected, one of the officers—he was arrested and tortured to death later—managed to smuggle me onto a lighter for the moon base. I was an orderly in the hospital there. The day the Crown Prince was murdered, we had a mutiny of our own. We killed everybody we even suspected of being a mechanist. The moon base has been under attack from the planet ever since." There was a stir behind him. Turning, he saw Princess Bentrick and the boy enter the room. He rose. "'We'll talk about this later. There are some people here.' He motioned them forward and turned away, shooing everybody else out of the room. The news was all over Rivington and then all over Tanith, while the pinnace was still coming down. There was a crowd at the spaceport, staring as the little craft, with its blazon of the crowned and planet-throne dragon, settled onto its landing legs, and reporters of the Tanith News Service with their screen pickups. He met Prince Bentrick a little in advance of the others, and managed to whisper to him hastily, "'While you're talking to anybody here, Always remember that Andre Dunnan is working with Zaspar McCann, and as soon as McCann consolidates his position, he's sending an expedition against Tanith. How in blazes did you find that out here? Bentrick demanded. From the Gilgameshers? Then Harkaman and Rathmore and Valkenhayn and Lothar Fail and the others were crowding up behind, and more people were coming off the pinnace and Prince Bentrick was trying to embrace both his wife and his son at the same time. Prince Trask! He started at the voice, and was looking into deep blue eyes under coal-black hair. His pulse gave a sudden jump, and he said, Valerie! And then, Lady Alvareth, I'm most happy to see you here. Then he saw who was beside her, and squatted on his heels to bring himself down to a convenient size and Princess Myrna. Welcome to Tanith, Your Highness. 
The child flung her arms around his neck. Oh, Prince Lucas, I'm so glad to see you. There's been such awful things happened. There won't be anything awful happen here, Princess Myrna. You're among friends, friends with whom you have a treaty, remember? The child began to cry bitterly. That was when I was just a play queen, but now I know what they mean when they talked about when Grandpa and Papa would be through being king. Papa didn't even get to be king. Something big and warm and soft was trying to push between them. A dog with long blond hair and floppy ears. In a year and a half, puppies can grow surprisingly. Mopsy was trying to lick his face. He took the dog by the collar and straightened. "'Lady Valerie, will you come with us?' he asked. "'I'm going to find quarters for Princess Myrna.' "'Is it Princess Myrna, or is it Queen Myrna?' he asked. Prince Bentrick shook his head. "'We don't know. The King was alive when we left Moonbase, but that was five hundred hours ago. We don't know anything about her mother, either. She was at the palace when Prince Edvard was murdered. We've heard absolutely nothing about her.' The king made a few screen appearances, parroting things McCann wanted him to say, under hypnosis. That was probably the very least of what they did to him. They've turned him into a zombie. Well, how did Myrna get to Moonbase? That was Lady Valerie, as much as anybody else. She and Sir Thomas Cobley and Captain Rayner. They armed the servants at Cragdale with hunting rifles and everything else they could scrape up captured Prince Edvard's space yacht, and took off in her. Took a couple of hits from ground batteries getting off, and from ships around Moonbase getting in. Ships of the Royal Marducan Navy, he added furiously. The pinnace in which they had made the trip to Tanith had taken a few hits, too, running the blockade. Not many, her captain had thrown her into hyperspace almost at once. They sent the yacht off to Gimli, Bentrick said. From there, they'll try to rally as many of the Royal Navy units as haven't gone over to McCann. They're to assemble on Gimli and await my return. If I don't return in fifteen hundred hours from the time I left Moonbase, they're to use their own judgment. I'd expect that they move in on Marduk and attack. That's sixty-odd days, Otto Harkeman said. That's an awfully long time to expect that lunar base to hold out against a whole planet. It's a strong base. It was built four hundred years ago, when Marduk was fighting a combination of six other planets. It held out against continuous attack once for almost a year. It's been constantly strengthened ever since. And what have they thrown at it? Harkeman persisted. When I left, six ships of the former Royal Navy that had gone over to McCann, four fifteen-hundred-footers, same class as the Victrix, and two thousand-footers. Then there were four of Andre Dunnan's ships. You mean he really is on Marduk? I thought you knew that, and I was wondering how you'd found out. Yes, Fortuna, Bolide, and two armed merchantmen, a Balder-built ship called the Reliable, and your friend Honest Horus. You didn't really believe Dunnan was on Marduk? Boke Valkenhayn asked. Actually, I didn't. I had to have some kind of a story to talk those people out of that crusade against Omfrey of Glaspeth. He left unmentioned Valkenhayn's own insistence on a plundering expedition against Zachittal. 
Now that it turns out to be true, I'm not surprised. We decided, long ago, that Dunnan was planning to raid Marduk. It appears that we underestimated him. Maybe he was reading about Hitler, too. He wasn't planning any raid, he was planning conquest, in the only way a great civilization can be conquered, by subversion. Yes, Harkeman put in. Five years ago, when Dunnan started this program, who was this McCann anyhow? Nobody, Bentrick said, a crackpot agitator in Dreplin. He had a coven of fellow crackpots, who met in the back room of a saloon and had their office in a cigar box. The next year he had a suite of offices and was buying time on a couple of telecasts. The year after that he had three telecast stations of his own, and was holding rallies and meetings of thousands of people, and so on upward. Yes, Dunnan financed him and moved in behind him, the same way McCann moved in behind the king. And Dunnan will have him shot the way he had Prince Edvard shot, and use the murder as a pretext to liquidate his personal followers. And then he'll own Marduk, and then we'll have the Mardukan navy coming out of hyperspace on Tanith, Valkenhayn added. So we go to Marduk and smash them now, while he's still little enough to smash. There had been a few who had wanted to do that about Hitler, and a great many, later, who had regretted that it hadn't been done. The Nemesis, the Coruscandi, and the Space Scourge for sure, he asked. Harkeman and Valkenhayn agreed. Valkenhayn thought the Viking's gift of Beowulf would go along, and Harkeman was almost sure of the Black Star and Queen Flavia. He turned to Bentrick. Start that pinnace off for Gimli at once, within the hour if possible. We don't know how many ships will be gathered there, but we don't want them wasted in detail attacks. Tell whoever's in command there that ships from Tanith are on the way, and to wait for them. Fifteen hundred hours, less the five hundred Bentrick was in space from Marduk. He hadn't time to estimate voyage time to Gimli from the other Marduken trade planets, and nobody could estimate how many ships would respond. It may take us a little time to get an effective fleet together, even after we get through arguing about it. Argument, he told Bentrick, is not exclusively a feature of democracies. Actually, there was very little argument, and most of that among the Mardukans. Prince Bentrick insisted that Crown Prince Myrna would have to be taken along. King McKill would be either dead or brainwashed into imbecility by now, and they would have to have somebody to take the throne. Lady Valerie Alvarath, Sir Thomas Cobley, the tutor, and the nurse, Margot, refused to be separated from her. Prince Bentrick was equally firm, with less success, on leaving his wife and son on Tanith. In the end, it was agreed that the entire Marducan party would space out on the nemesis. The leader of the Biglersport delegation attempted an impassioned tirade about going to the aid of strangers while their own planet was being enslaved. He was booed down by everybody else and informed that Tanith was being defended where a planet ought to be, on somebody else's real estate. When the Bigler's porters emerged from the meeting, they found that their own space yacht had been commandeered and sent off to Amaterasu and Beowulf for assistance, and the regiment of local infantry they had enlisted from the King of Tradetown had been taken over by the Rivington authorities. 
and that the Gilgamesh freighter they had chartered to transport them to Graham would now take them to Marduk. The problem broke into two halves. The purely naval action that would be fought to relieve the moon of Marduk, if it still held out, and to destroy the Dunnan and McCann ships, and the ground-fighting problem of wiping out McCann's supporters and restoring the Marduckan monarchy. A great many of the people of Marduk would be glad of a chance to turn on McCann once they had arms and were properly supported. Combat weapons were almost unknown among the people, however, and even sporting arms uncommon. All the small arms and light artillery and auto-weapons available were gathered up. The Grendelsbane came in from Beowulf, and the Sun Goddess from Amaterasu. Three independent space Viking ships were still in orbit on Tanith. They joined the expedition. There would be trouble with them on Marduk. They'd want to loot. They could charge it off as part of the price for letting Zaspar McCann get into power in the first place. There were twelve spacecraft in line outside the moon of Tanith, counting the three independents and the forcibly chartered Gilgamesher troop transport. That was the biggest fleet space Vikings had ever assembled in their history. Alvin Carford said as much while they were checking the formation by screen. It isn't a space Viking fleet, Prince Bentrick differed. There are only three space Vikings in it. The rest are the ships of three civilized planets. Tanith, Beowulf, and Amaterasu. Carford was surprised. You mean we're civilized planets? Like Marduk, or Baldur, or Odin, or, well, aren't you? Trask smiled. He'd begun to suspect something of the sort a couple of years ago. He hadn't really been sure until now. His most junior staff officer, Count Stephen of Ravery, didn't seem to appreciate the compliment. We are space Vikings, he insisted, and we're going to battle with the neo-barbarians of Zaspar McCann. Well, I won't argue the last half of it, Stephen, his father told him. Are you people done yakking about who's civilized and who isn't? Gwat Kirby asked. Then give me the signal. All the other ships are ready to jump. Trask pressed the button on the desk in front of him. A light went on over Kirby's control panel, as one would on each of the other ships. He said, Jumping! around the stem of his pipe, and twisted the red handle and shoved it in. Four hundred and fifty hours in the private universe that was the Nemesis. Outside, nothing else existed, and inside, there was nothing to do but wait, as each hour carried them six trillion miles nearer to Gimli. At first, the ruthless and terrible space Viking, Stephen, Count of Ravery, was wildly excited. But before long, he found that there was nothing exciting going on. It was just a spaceship, and he'd been on ships before. Her Highness, the Crown Princess, or maybe Her Majesty, the Queen of Marduk, stopped being excited about the same time, and she and Stephen and Mopsy played together. Of course, Myrna was only a girl, and two years younger than Stephen, but she was, or at least might be, his sovereign. And beside, she had been in a space action, if you call what lies between a planet and its satellite space, and if you call being shot at without being able to shoot back an action. 
and relentless ravery the interstellar terror had not. This rather made up for being a girl and a mere baby of going on ten. One thing, there were no lessons. Sir Thomas Cobley fancied himself as a landscape painter and spent most of his time arguing techniques with Van Larch. And Stephen's tutor, Captain Rayner, was a normal space astrogator and found a kindred spirit in Charles Renner. This left Lady Valerie Alvarath at a loose end. There were plenty of volunteers to help her fill in the time, but rank hath its privileges. Trask undertook to see it that she did not suffer excessively from shipboard ennui. Charles Renner and Captain Rayner approached him, during the cocktail hour before dinner, some hundred hours short of emergence. "'We think we've figured out where Dunnan's base is,' Renner said. "'Oh, good. Everybody else had, on a different planet. Where's yours?' "'Abaddon,' the Count of Ravery's tutor said. When he saw that the name meant nothing to Trask, he added, "'The ninth outer planet of the Marduk system.' He said it disgustedly. "'Yes. Remember how you had Boke and Manfred out with their ships, checking our outside planets to see if Prince Victor might be hiding on one of them? Well, what with the time element, and the way the honest Horus was shuttling back and forth from Marduk to some place that wasn't Gimli, and the way Dunnan was able to bring his ships in as soon as the shooting started on Marduk, we thought he must be on an uninhabited outer planet of the Marduk system." "'I don't know why we never thought of that ourselves,' Raynor put in. "'I suppose because nobody ever thinks of Abaddon for any reason. It's only a small planet, about four thousand miles in diameter, and it's three and a half billion miles from primary. It's frozen solid. It would take almost a year to get to it on Abbott Drive, and if your ship has Dillingham's, why not take a little longer and go to a good planet? So nobody bothered with Abaddon. But for Dunnan's purpose it would be perfect. He called Prince Bentrick and Alvin Carford to him. They found the idea instantly convincing. They talked about it through dinner and held a general discussion afterward. Even Goat Kirby, the ship's pessimist, could find no objection to it. Trask and Bentrick began at once making battle plans. Carford wondered if they hadn't better wait till they got to Gimli and discuss it with the others. "'No,' Trask told him. "'This is the flagship. Here's where the strategy is decided.' "'Well, how about the Marducan Navy?' Captain Raynor asked. "'I think Fleet Admiral Bargum's in command at Gimli.' Prince Simon Bentrick was silent for a moment, as though he realized, with reluctance, that the big decision was no longer avoidable. He may be at present, but he won't be when I get there. I will be. But, Your Highness, he's a fleet admiral. You're just a commodore. I am not just a commodore. The king is a prisoner, and for all we know, dead. The crown prince is dead. The prince Myrna is a child. I am assuming the position of regent and prince protector of the realm. 26. There was a little difficulty on Gimli with Fleet Admiral Bargum. Commodores didn't give orders to Fleet Admirals. Well, maybe Regents did, but who gave Prince Bentrick authority to call himself Regent? 
Regents were elected by the Chamber of Delegates, on nomination of the Chancellor. "'That's Zaspar McCann and his stooges you're talking about?' Bentrick laughed. "'Well, the Constitution—' He thought better of that, before somebody asked him what Constitution. "'Well, a Regent has to be chosen by election. Even members of the royal family can't just make themselves Regent by saying they are.' I can, I just have, and I don't think there are going to be any more elections, at least for the present. Not till we make sure the people of Marda can be trusted with the control of the government. Well, the pinnace from Moonbase reported that there were six Royal Navy battleships and four other craft attacking them, Bargham objected. I only have four ships here. I sent for the ones on the other trade planets, but I haven't heard from any of them. We can't go there with only four ships. Sixteen ships, Bentrick corrected. No, fifteen, and one Gilgamesher we're using for a troop ship. I think that's enough. You'll remain here on Gimli in any case, Admiral. As soon as the other ships come in, you'll follow to Marduk with them. I am now holding a meeting aboard the Tanith flagship Nemesis. I want your four ship commanders aboard immediately. I am not including you, because you're remaining here to bring up the latecomers, and as soon as this meeting is over, we are spacing out. Actually, they spaced out sooner. The meeting lasted the whole three hundred and fifty hours to Abaddon. A ship's captain, if he has a good exec, as all of them had, needs only sit at his command desk and look important while the ship is going into and emerging from a long jump. The rest of the time he can study ancient history or whatever his shipboard hobby is. Rather than waste three hundred and fifty hours of precious time, each captain turned his ship over to his exec and remained aboard the Nemesis. Even on so spacious a craft, the officer's country north of the engine rooms was crowded like a tourist hotel in mid-season. One of the four Marduckans was the Captain Garavay, who had smuggled Bentrick's wife and son off Marduk and the other three were just as pro-Bentric, pro-Tanith, and anti-McCann. They were, on general principles, also anti-Bargham. There must be something wrong with any fleet admiral who remained in his command after Zaspar McCann came to power. So, as soon as they spaced out, there was a party. After that, they settled down to planning the Battle of Abaddon. There was no Battle of Abaddon. It was a dead planet, one side in night and the other in dim twilight, from the little speck of a sun three and a half billion miles away, jagged mountains rising out of the snow that covered it from pole to pole. The snow on top would be frozen CO2. According to the thermocouples, the surface temperature was well below minus one hundred centigrade. No ships on orbit circled it. There was a little faint radiation, which could have been from naturally radioactive minerals. There was no electrical discharge detectable. There was considerable bad language in the command room of the Nemesis. The captains of the other ships were screening in, wanting to know what to do. "'Go on in,' Trass told them, "'and globe the planet, and go down to within a mile if necessary. They could be hiding somewhere on it.' Well, they're not hiding at the bottom of any ocean, that's for sure, somebody said. 
It was one of those feeble jokes at which everybody laughs, because nothing else is laughable about the situation. Finally they found it, at the North Pole, which was no colder than anywhere else on the planet. First radiation leakage, the sort that would come from a closed-down nuclear power plant. Then a modicum of electrical discharge. Finally, the telescopic screens picked up the spaceport, a huge oval amphitheater excavated out of a valley between two jagged mountain ranges. The language in the command room was just as bad, but the tone had changed. It was surprising what a wide range of emotions could be expressed by a few simple blasphemies and obscenities. Everybody who had been deriding Charles Renner were now acclaiming him. But it was lifeless. The ships came crowding in. Air-locked landing craft full of space-armored ground fighters went down. Screens in the command room lit as they transmitted in views. Depressions in the carbon dioxide snow, where the hundred-foot pad-feet of ship's landing legs had pressed down. Ranks of cargo lighters that had plied to and from other ships or orbit. And, all around the cliff-walled perimeter, air-locked doors to caverns and tunnels. A great many men, with a great deal of equipment, had been working here in the estimated five or six years since Andre Dunnan, or somebody, had constructed this base. Andre Dunnan. They found his badge, the crescent, blue on black, on things. They found equipment that Harkeman recognized as having been part of the original cargo stolen with the Enterprise. They even found, in his living quarters, a blown-up photoprint picture of Neville Orme, draped in black. But what they did not find was a single vehicle small enough to be taken aboard a ship, or a single scrap of combat equipment, not even a pistol or a hand-grenade. Dunnan had gone, but they knew whither and where to find him. The conquest of Marduk had moved into its final phase. Marduk was on the other side of the sun from Abaddon, with ninety-five million miles, close, but not inconveniently so, Trask thought, to spare. Guat Kirby and the Marduckan astrogator who was helping him made it within a light minute. The Marduckan thought that was fine, Kirby didn't. The last micro-jump was aimed at the moon of Marduk, which was plainly visible in the telescopic screen. They came out within a light second and a half, which Kirby admitted was reasonably close. As soon as the screens cleared, they saw that they weren't too late. The moon of Marduk was under fire and firing back. They'd have detection, and he knew what they were detecting, a clump of sixteen rending distortions of the fabric of space-time, as sixteen ships came into sudden existence in the normal continuum. Beside him, Bentrick had a screen on. It was still milky white, and he was speaking into a radio handphone. Simon Bentrick, Prince Protector of Marduk, calling Moonbase. Then, slowly, he repeated his screen combination twice. Come in, Moonbase. This is Simon Bentrick, Prince Protector, speaking. He waited ten seconds and was about to start again when the screen flickered. The man who appeared in it wore the insignia of a Marducan Navy Commodore. He needed a shave, but he was grinning happily. Bentrick greeted him by name. Hello, Simon. Glad to see you. Your Highness, I mean. What is this Prince Protector thing, 
Somebody had to do it. Is the king still alive? The grin slid off the Commodore's face, starting with his eyes. We don't know. At first, McCann had him speaking by screen. You know what it was like, urging everybody to obey and cooperate with our trusted Chancellor. McCann always appeared on the screen with him. Bentrick nodded. I remember. Before you left, McCann kept quiet and let the King make the speech. After a while, the King wasn't able to speak coherently. He'd stammer and repeat. So then McCann did all the talking. They couldn't even depend on him to parrot what they were giving him with an earplug phone. Then he stopped appearing entirely. I suppose there were physical symptoms they couldn't allow to be seen. Bentrick was cursing horribly under his breath. The officer at the moon base nodded. I hope for his sake that he is dead. Poor Goodman McKill. Bentrick was saying, So do I. Trask agreed mentally. The Commodore at Moonbase was still talking. We got two more renegade RMN ships within a hundred hours after you left, he named them. And we got one of the Dunnan ships, the Fortuna. We blew out the Malverton Navy Yard. They're still using the Antarctic Naval Base, but we've knocked out a good deal of that. We got the Honest Horus. They made two attempts to land on us and lost a couple of ships. Eight hundred hours ago, they were joined by the rest of Dunnan's fleet, five ships. They made a landing on Malverton while it was turned away from us. McCann announced that they were RMN units from the trade planets that had joined him. I suppose the planet-side public swallowed that. He also announced that their commander, Admiral Dunnan, was in command of the People's Armed Forces. Dunnan's ground fighters would be in control of Malverton. By now, the odds were that McCann was as much his prisoner as King McHill VIII had been McCann's. So Dunnan has conquered Marduk. All he has to do now is make it stick, he said. I see four ships off Moonbase. How many more have they? These are Bolide and Eclipse, Dunnan ships, and former Royal Marduckan Navy ships, Champion and Guardian. There are five orbiting off the planet. XRMNS Paladin and Dunnan ship Starhopper, Banshee, Reliable, and Exporter. The last two are listed as merchantmen, but they're performing like regulation battlecraft. The four that had been circling Moonbase broke orbit and started toward the relieving fleet. One took a hit from a Moonbase missile, which staggered her but did no evident damage. Two ships, which had been orbiting the planet, also changed course and started out. The command room was silent, except for a subdued chuckling from a computer which was estimating enemy intentions by observing data and games theory. Three more came hurrying out from the planet, and the two in the lead slowed to let them catch up. He wanted to be able to engage the four from off the satellite before the five from the planet joined them, but Carford's computers said it couldn't be done. "'All right, we'll have to take all our bad eggs in one basket,' he said. Try to hit them as soon after they join as possible." The computers began chuckling again. The serving robots were doing a rush business in hot coffee. Prince Bentrick's son, sitting beside his father, had stopped being ruthless ravery, the demon of the spaceways, 
and was a very young officer going into his first space battle, more scared and at the same time happier than he had ever been in his short life. Captain Garavay of the Vindex was making signal to the other ships from Gimli. Royal Navy, smash the traitors first! He could understand and sympathize, even if he couldn't approve of putting personal ahead of tactical considerations, and made a quick sealed-beam call to Harkaman to be prepared to plug any holes they left in formation if they broke away in search of vengeance. He also ordered the Black Star and the Sun Goddess to shepherd the lightly armed and troop-crammed Gilgamesh freighter out of danger. The two clumps of Dunnan McCann ships were converging rapidly and Alvin Carford was screaming into a phone to somebody to get more speed. At a thousand miles the missile started going out, and the two groups of ships, four and five, were equidistant from each other and from the Allied fleet, at the points of a triangle that was growing smaller by the second. The first fire-globes of intercepted missiles spread from their seeds of brief white light. A red light flashed on the damage board. An enemy ship took a hit. The captain of the Queen Flavia was on a screen, saying that his ship was heavily damaged. Three ships, bearing the Marducan, Dragon, and Planet, circled madly around each other, at what looked, in the screen, like just over pistol range, two of them firing into the third, which was replying desperately. The third one blew up, and somebody was yelling out of a screen speaker, "'Scratch one traitor!' Another ship blew up somewhere, and then another. He heard somebody say, "'They're what one of ours!' and wondered which one it was. Not the Corsandi, he hoped. No, it wasn't. He could see her rushing after two other ships, which were, in turn, speeding toward the Black Star, the Sun Goddess, and the Gilgamesh freighter. Then the Nemesis and the Starhopper were within gun range, pounding each other savagely. The battle had tied itself into a ball of gyrating, fire-spitting ships that went rolling toward the planet, which was swinging in and out of the main viewscreen and growing rapidly larger. By the time they were down to the inner edge of the exosphere, the ball had started to unwind, ship after ship dropping out of it and going into orbit, some badly damaged and some going to attack damaged enemies. Some of them were completely around the planet, hidden by it. He saw three ships approaching Coruscant, Sun Goddess, and the Gilgamesher. He got Harkaman on the screen. "'Where's the Black Star?' he asked. "'Gone to M.C. Square,' Harkaman replied. "'We got the two Dunnan McCanns, bolide and reliable.' Then young Stephen of Ravery, who had been monitoring one of the inner ship screens, had a call from Captain Gompertz of the Grendelsbane and at the same moment somebody else was yelling, "'Here comes the Starhopper again!' "'Tell him to wait a moment. We have troubles,' he said. Nemesis and Starhopper sledgehammered each other and parried with counter-missiles. And then, quite unexpectedly, the Starhopper went to M.C. Square. There was an awful lot of M being converted to E off Marduk today, including Manfred Ravallo. That grieved him. Manfred was a good man and a good friend. He had a girl in Rivington. Niflheim, there were eight hundred good men aboard the Black Star, and most of them had girls who'd wait in vain for them on Tanith. Well, what had Otto Harkeman said so long ago on Graham? 
something about old age not being a usual cause of death among space Vikings, wasn't it? Then he remembered that Gompertz of the Grendelsbane was trying to get him. He told young Count Stephen to switch him over. "'We just lost one of our Mardukans,' Gompertz told him, in his staccato Beowulf accent. "'I think she was the challenger. The ship that got her looks like the Banshee. I'm turning to engage her.' "'Which way? West around the planet? Be right with you, Captain.'" End of Chapter 26